Hello, this is former Fox Sports Wisconsin anchor and proud fellow Wauwatosan Jeff Grayson. From my position high in the booth, it appears conditions are good for this much-anticipated matchup. Let's go down to the studio. The action is about to start. It's season four of the Bait and Switch podcast. Welcome back to the Bait and Switch podcast. My name is Jim Martin, along with my co-host, as always, Chris Beyer. Hello, Jim. Hello, Chris. How are you? Good. We're being more cordial these days. A little bit more cordial. Well, you know, it's the pandemic. Blame it on the pandemic. I was too flippant before. A little bit. Or kind of uh, not fully engaged when you greeted me. Right. And yeah, so I appreciate the the engagement and the attention. From here on in. But this is the new me. That's nice. Turn over a new leaf. I like that. All right. So, All right. Chris, you know, speaking yeah. of the pandemic. Yeah. So I'm just going to, before we get to our guests, I'm just going to throw this out there. I was talking to somebody and we were having a little debate about something. You know, it got a little bit heated. And, you know, and so this person turned to me and he said, you know what? We're just going to have to agree to disagree. And I thought, well, why? We're arguing here. Why do you think I suddenly would just turn a switch and, well, you're right now. I agree with you. I agree. We disagree. I stood my ground. I said, I'm not agreeing to disagree. And we kept fighting. And then he walked away. So, you know, maybe you need to turn over a new leaf, Jim. It's time for you to you know, be more cordial as well. I mean, I did it. I think that you'll find more contentment in, in just agreeing to disagree. You and, might I, right. if, and pardon me, but I will agree to disagree with your disagreement. But I'm not agreeing with this. I, I, is it too much? You think it's too much? I think it. Because I think I've, it's too much. I, before I've never, I've never took a stand on that. I just thought, you know what? You're right. We have to agree to agree. This time I thought, wait a minute. Why do I have to agree? I guess we're just going to have to agree. Gonna, to I guess we're going to have to agree to disagree. This time I'll agree. All right. Well, anyway, we left our guest waiting long enough in the waiting room. We appreciate his patience. So a couple of weeks ago, we had the mayor of Wauwatosa on our show. And for our listeners, probably a couple months ago now, but, um, and when we got done with the show, just like we do a lot of times, we asked him, do you know any interesting people who might be interested in, in coming on the podcast and having some fun and talking? He said, you know, my brother actually is, has a lot of interesting stories. So we got a hold of, of his brother and he has graciously agreed to come on our show today. Dr. Patrick McBride is with us today to talk about a lot of, uh, just a whole lot of things. I'll let him tell you what he's going to talk about, but welcome, Dr. McBride. Thank you for coming on the show. Oh, great to be here. Good to see you. Yeah. Now, yeah, thank you. Good to see you. Yeah. Now, Jim said that. If we're going to talk about a wide range of topics, but I think it'll be relatively narrow. We're going to talk about. I, I, we're going to have to agree to disagree. Chris. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah, we're, I, I, yeah, I'm going to have to agree to disagree on that. <laughs> all right. Well, I, I thought that it might be a focus on the book that he put out called "The Luckiest Boy in the World." What's the basic premise of your book here, Mister uh, Doctor McBride? Either one's fine. I write about how, when I was a kid, I actually grew up in a big Irish Catholic family in Wauwatosa, which was a bit unusual at the time. It was a very interesting family with a lot of interesting stories, but it was also dysfunctional. Like, actually, we found out a lot of families in in the 1950s and 60s. At the age of 15, I decided to um, enter a contest to become the Brewers' first bat boy, and I won that contest. And then um, around that very same time period, the Bucks won a coin flip to have the opportunity to get somebody named Lou Cinder, who had actually already changed his name, but didn't tell anyone to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And when that happened, literally that minute, I went went to the phone and called the Bucks and uh, asked how I could work for them. And I got a job as a ball boy on the bench at the same time that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar did. 
And um, I worked for the 1971 world champion Bucks. And then it turns out that the Green Bay Packers played in Milwaukee County Stadium during those years, five games. And because I worked for the Brewers, I was able to work for the Packers. So at the age of 15, I found myself working for all three professional sports teams in Wisconsin. And I think I'm the only kid in America that probably ever had that opportunity. That's um, amazing. I mean, I, I remember when I was a kid and probably not unusual, I thought like, what does it take to get to be that ball boy? Like I watched mm-hmm. that guy out on the field with the players, you know, and uh, they were cordial to him. It wasn't like they were yucking it up with him or anything, but I thought, oh, man, it'd be cool to be out there. And I can't imagine being with, like you said, all three teams. That's crazy. Yeah. And I was also lucky, you know, I, um, I had also a pretty charm life. They call me Forrest Gump sometimes, not not maybe for the disability, but um, for who I meet. So my mother worked at the White House, so I got to meet several and see several presidents. Um, I traveled. I seemed to be everywhere. 20 years ago on 9-11, I was in Manhattan. Um, really? At the time, yeah, at the time of the Boston Marathon bombing, I happened to be there when the Shania brothers were being chased through Boston. Whoa. Um I've, I just seemed, you know, Camp Randall in 1993, I was at the game where the students um, all char- charged on top of each other. And I, Michigan and, game, and right? I helped. Yeah, the Michigan mm-hmm. game. And I had to resuscitate five students on the field. And so Whoa. I just seemed to be in all these places that like Forrest Gump was, you know. So that's a big part of the story in the book as well. Oh, wow. Okay. So has the book been published? Yeah. The book will be out in about uh, two weeks, which. By the time of this podcast, I think. So sure. uh, the answer will be yes when this is live. Oh, that's fantastic. So you were kind of the, the Bo Jackson of uh, ball boys here. Now, that first one, you just called up. You said you won the job. How many kids were vying to be the first bat boy? And again, you said the Brewers. This is the Milwaukee Brewers. Our podcast yeah, is yeah. based in Milwaukee. And what do you think it was that made them pick you? It was interesting because it was 1969 and we hadn't gotten the Brewers yet. Bud Selig was trying to bring baseball back to Milwaukee and he was working really hard to find a team that would come and uh, try to get uh, baseball to expand and get new franchises. Well, they expanded in 69, but they didn't pick Milwaukee. They picked Seattle and Montreal. So um, he was heartbroken. And then he started trying to work with the White Sox. So they had 11 White Sox games in 1969. And that's what the essay contest was. And I don't know the exact number of, of essays that kids turned in, but it was well over a several hundred and um they picked 10 of us to work 11 games and we had to divide up the games and work different positions uh home bat boy visiting bat boy the catching the balls off the net or working down the foul lines two things that really happened that were really cool uh one was that i saw that the clubhouse guys really needed a lot of help so i stuck around after the games and i ran bags back and forth and i helped them clean up and no other none of the other 10 kids did that and that's what got me the job the next year when the Brewers showed up. And the second thing that happened was the first game that I worked in 1969 was an exhibition game between the 1969 Chicago Cubs. And that's a pretty cool story in, in itself. And the White Sox. And I was the Cubs bat boy that day. So the first game of 1969's Chicago Cubs, I was their bat boy. The wow. famous team that collapsed at the end of the season. And I put on a wool Chicago Cubs uniform and I got the dugout ready. And I'd never been in a major league dugout. I've been a kid running around the stadium for years, you know. And I, the guy showed me how to set up the dugout and everything. And I was waiting for my first player to come. And all of a sudden I heard spikes coming down the dugout. And I imagined, you know, 
who'd sat in that dugout before Roberto Clemente, Willie Mays, Stan Musial, all the greats of all time, Mickey Mantle, you know, and I keep hearing these clicks come down the tunnel and I'm getting goosebumps because I don't know who it's going to be, you know, and all of a sudden a head pokes around the side of the dugout and the guy said, Hey son, it's a great day. Let's play two. And it's Ernie Banks. And wow. I, <laughs> I almost fainted. Yeah. Right. And then he said, son, you want to have a catch? And so I step out <laughs> onto the gravel of the warning track in front of the dugout and we start playing catch. And I was so nervous. I could barely throw it. And he goes, relax, son. It's just catch. <laughs> and then we just started whipping it back and forth. And I realized, man, I am playing catch, catch with Mr. Cub, you know? Wow. I, I was, that was the moment. I would have taken just be a bad boy, but boy, that's, yeah. uh, that's. <laughs> and that like kind that. of thing wasn't the first or last great thing that happened to me, you know, in the next seven years. Yeah. So that, that was the moment. Wow. Until I saw Kareem Abdul-Jabbar walk into a locker room. That was another moment, you know, and duck his head in half. Yeah. Right, now, right. <laughs> Kareem, I've heard different stories about in terms of whether he was a friendly guy or not a friendly guy. What was your experience with him? Yeah, there's two people that I really highlight in the book as having uh, mistaken attitudes about what they were really like. Kareem's one and, and Ted Williams is the other. Kareem was a terrific guy in the locker room. The problem was that outside of the locker room, you know, he's seven to three inches tall and um, everybody points at him and asks him how the weather is up there and how tall are you and what do you do? and swarmed in the airport, swarmed outside, swarmed downtown, swarmed in the arena. And he's a very shy and introverted guy. He's very quiet, withdrawn kind of person, very intellectual. In the locker room, he was relaxed, fun, brilliant. He's always reading, knows in a book or playing chess, talking about jazz. He always said, please and thank you and ask how we were, knew everybody by name. Terrific guy. He, uh, when he comes to Madison, he gives me a call. Really? Um, yeah, still. Wow, that's great. Years later, and wow. and you mentioned Ted Williams. What about and Ted, Ted Williams, Williams um, was the manager of the Washington Senators in 1970 when I was a bat boy, and he was one of the first teams to come through. And you know, I had this reputation of being snarky and terrible with fans, and not like that in the clubhouse at all. His players adored him. They they just hung on every word because they knew this was the greatest hitter of all time, and they knew he studied baseball endlessly and. They literally kind of followed him around in batting practice and walked up to the cage. And when he, when he'd say something, he jumped in the cage and demonstrated and he'd hit a line drive out to right field and be like, Oh, you know, <laughs> so the players really respected him. And I was sitting in the dugout with him and um, he actually said to me, how old are you? And you know, what grade are you in school? And all of a sudden two nuns put their heads around the corner of the dugout and they said, Teddy, and he whipped off his cap and he went over and yes, yes, sisters, what can I do for you? And he said, could, could we get your autograph? And he said, son, get me two baseballs. And I ran, I got two baseballs and he signed them and he talked to these nuns and whole time he had his cap off. Don't forget he served in the military twice in World War II in Korea. Wow. And he didn't go parading around playing baseball like Joe DiMaggio. He, he was a fighter pilot. And then he came back and he sat down and I said, Mr. Williams, can I ask you a question? And he said, sure, son, what is it? And I said, you know, I'm struggling at the plate and I have a bad left eye and, and I'm right-handed. And I was, I was wondering if I should switch the left hand and put my better eye toward the pitcher. And he said, how bad is your left eye? And I said, 2,600. And he said, have you ever thought of pitching? <laughs> kind, of, kind of a drop the mic moment. For Boom. Ted Williams. Yeah. Career over. <laughs> right. Athletic huh? trainer or doctor. Right. <laughs> you know, that was it. 
I moved on to Ted Williams, but I want to back up a little bit. I don't want you to betray your relationship too much, I guess, with Kareem here. But yeah. He said he'll give you a call. Do you guys go out and have a drink or something when he's in town? Oh, you know, he's come to Madison a couple of times. He has a an agent, a person that handles his stuff, and she's called. And he'll say, let's have lunch or let's have dinner. Wow, that's fantastic. That's, that's what Just- Real quick, uh, do you think you'd be interested in being on the show? <laughs> <laughs> don't don't push you, it, Jim. <laughs> you gotta you gotta talk to his agent. I'm not kidding. <laughs> Nothing gets done without talking to Debbie. Uh, my father-in-law was a big, uh, a huge Boston Red Sox fan, Ted Williams fan, you know. And uh, oh, and my son's yeah. name is Theodore, so he used to call him Teddy oh, Baseball. Yeah, wow. Yeah. You yeah. know, Teddy ball game. Great. That's what it was. Sorry. Yeah, I should, I should, I should, I have to change. I used yeah, to call him Teddy ball. Game. I would call him Teddy baseball. I'd be, yeah. I'd be laughed out of the town. Uh, he was a, a good man in the clubhouse. I know that he had his issues outside of it. I can tell you that. Yeah. So do you think the, uh, do you think the baseball gig gotcha the basketball gig? Well, it may have helped in a, in one way. It was not really brought up, but because I didn't want to double up or they might have said, Oh, the kids already got something, you know? Mm-hmm. But what it did was offer, I had so much experience already meeting, you know, great star, big stars and all that kind of stuff. You know, I'd already met Williams and all the Baltimore Orioles and all these guys that when I walked up, I, I wasn't intimidated because at the table in front of me was John Erickson, the former UW coach that had become the general manager of the Bucks, Larry Costello, the coach, Arnie Garber, the trainer. They were the ones asking me the questions. I mean, I couldn't believe the head coach of the Bucks was there or the general GM was asking kids. I and mean, there were 80 kids in the room. Right, right. You know, and yeah, these were is- cold call kids. You know, we were kids from the north side, south side suburbs, you know. Boom. Yeah, that, that's interesting that they would have those guys interviewing the, the the ball boys, the equipment guys, right? I mean, that's, yeah. you think they'd have, <laughs> they'd have yeah, people like, for that, but yeah. Yeah, right. But, you know, yeah. now there's staffs of hundreds, hundreds of people. Yeah. I mean, we. We had a small budget. I just ran into our former GM, Wayne Embry, and we had a good laugh about it, about how things have changed. You know, I had a budget of 55000 my first year as equipment manager. Mm-hmm. I became the equipment manager when I was 18 as, as a senior in high school, and I used to have to present this budget. Now that budgets must be in the millions, you know. I was going to say 55000 is like somebody's pairs of shoes for this, for the season. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not even the towels, I can tell yeah, you. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then you went on to be with the, well, not went on to, but you were also uh, involved with the Packers because they played at County Stadium. Okay. That was one of the most interesting things. You know, um, if you can imagine the Green Bay Packers playing on a baseball field, you know, they'd cut the stadium onto this baseball field and they never covered up the infield. The infield was hard as a rock. So these guys would get tackled on the infield. It was (sighs) brutal. And anyway, we'd fit um, an entire football team imagine they bring down the entire team plus, you know, the guys that are on the practice squad and everything, and they cram them into a baseball locker room. That was our job. That's why we were there. So if you worked for the baseball team, you worked in the locker room, you worked for the Packers. So we'd get uh, over a hundred people in a baseball locker room. It was horrible. And (laughs) then they'd get full of dirt, you know, full of mud and dirt and everything because late in the year and snow and, you know, rain and all that stuff. And you get all these football players wearing all the pads and helmets and everything. So we had case after case of training gear and extra pads and capes and all that stuff. And we had to get that down from the locker room through these tunnels up the dugout and onto the field. And then if a player got hurt, we didn't have golf carts then. So we used stretchers. Okay. And we'd carry the guys off the Ooh. field as they're screaming and moaning with fractured legs and stuff. 
sure. and they're having on these stretchers yeah. and we're bouncing them, you know, and they're ah, ah, screaming every time we <sighs> bounce them. And we'd go down the dugout steps oh, and then geez. up steps and into the tunnel and then up a twisted flight of stairs and they're screaming the whole time. Uh, it was a pretty brutal experience, to be honest. I'd, yeah. I'd been an athletic trainer for high school football games and even UWM, but I never had an experience like the, the speed and the, and the gore and the hitting. There was blood everywhere on the sideline. Sure. On a, on a pro football field. Well, especially back then. I mean, back then it was oh. like just out, no rules about anything. You know, just and each other. Well, and they, they literally put casts under their forearms, you know, and then just pulled the long sleeves over it. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. yeah. I mean, they were there. It was different. They were, yeah. They allowed hitting. They don't allow today. Right. Right. Yeah. I remember the story and it wasn't quite that long ago, but about Ronnie Lott. And this might be an urban, oh, yeah. urban legend. Have you heard this? Oh, yeah. Where he broke his finger. Chris, have you heard this? Mm. Broke his, his pinky finger and they said, well, you're going to be out six weeks. And he said, well, how long will I be out if you just cut it off? They said, like, th- two weeks. He's like, cut it off. Like, what? <laughs> like, so they cut his pinky finger off or at least part of it. And uh, like I said, it might be urban legend. I don't know, but um, it'll but be in his wiki page. I guarantee you. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. I'll, that's the story. I'll do a little uh, name dropping. I believe Ronnie Lott is from Davenport, Iowa. I went to school in Davenport, Iowa, and I used to play pickup basketball with his brother oh really oh yeah and i broke his little finger off i grabbed it and yanked well, it, off. Yanked it yeah, right off yeah, yeah well but, matching uh, now <laughs> yeah wow now there's two of the lot brothers without a finger yeah right yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know um we're kind of going back and forth i was just thinking today uh as of this recording they announced ryan braun's retirement and of course his career is sullied by the doping allegations mm-hmm. not the doping mm-hmm. allegations but the actual doping did you, and you don't have to name any names, did mm. you encounter any any uh, illicit uh, pharmaceuticals in any of your uh, sporting career there? Did you see people doing stuff? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that question because it's really interesting when the steroid thing really popped and they said, oh, you know, but they used to do amphetamines and, and all that. And uh, we were with p- baseball players for 12 hours sometimes, you know, double headers, 10 hours, a lot of times, because they get there really early in the afternoon and they don't leave until really late at night. Mm. So I never saw a pill taken in a major league locker room, baseball mm. locker room. I saw pills taken in football locker rooms and mm. I don't know what they were, you know, they were green and white or whatever. And I was, you know, in my teens and, you know, late teens and I just don't know what they were, sure. but the trainer was at passing out pills in football locker rooms. I don't know what it was. I also saw steroid injections being done. Oh, really? In football locker rooms, but never in a baseball locker room. I never saw a a pitcher get a steroid, which would have been fine, but I never saw an injection in baseball except Ron Santo of the Cubs taking his insulin in 1969. That was like, whoa, you know that? You're 15, you're seeing a professional baseball player giving themselves their own injection. That was a wake up for me. Sure. no, no steroids, no drugs in baseball. So when they, if somebody says Hank Aaron was hit a lot of home runs because he was doing bennies, that's baloney. I mean, mm-hmm. I, so I was with that guy many times and that did not happen. Just good to know. They, uh, a lot of them smoked cigarettes. That's what they're, yes, that's what they're doing. I can tell you that 95% <laughs> of baseball yeah. players in the seventies <laughs> smoked and the other 5% chewed. Right. There right. was a rare, rare baseball player that did not use tobacco. We had tobacco out in the clubhouse. It was the job of the guy, ma- managers of the clubhouse to put out. And these guys smoke like chimneys. It was, yeah. I don't know where that started, 
<laughs> I tried chewing tobacco one time. Somebody left some behind. I thought my head was going to explode. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, boom. So when those guys had that big honk of chaw, oh, you know how God. that was made? So they would take a wad of red man or, you know, beaches chew, uh-huh. I mean, like about the, about the size of a golf ball. And then they would take two or three sticks of Wrigley's Juicy Fruit or Spearmint. Okay. That's what they had. They'd wrap it around the chaw. And they would put that entire wad in their mouth. Wow. And the, and the guy with the biggest wad was Rod Carew, right? And Wad Carew, Rod Carew has damaged his heart so bad that mm. he just had a heart transplant. Wonderful guy. I mean, one of mm. my top 10 favorite people. But he did it, he said, because he had that unusual batting style. Right. And he put the chaw on his in his right cheek, so it pulled his right lower eyelid down so he had a better vision of the baseball wow that's no why kidding. he said he did it interesting in his, in his autobiography but i think the rest of these guys just did it and i saw a catcher one time dave duncan of the oakland athletics have he always had a big hunk of chaw and he caught a foul tip under his mask and the chaw he swallowed the chaw oh. and he made a 40 yard dash to the dugout bathroom yeah, yeah. and started <laughs> retching for about five minutes while the entire team was crowded around him, making fun of him. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. Hollering and making fun of him while he's tossing his red man. <laughs> they probably called him wretch for the rest of the season yeah, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's it. Baseball players don't, there's no prisoners. And that chew is performance enhancing. Is it not? In it is performance that... enhancing because it's right. got a, a lot of caffeine in it. It's stimulating. No question. Mm-hmm. That's a good call. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I'm not kidding. You. My heart has never beaten harder or faster than when I put that chew in my mouth for hmm. just wow. a minute. Yeah. God, just, that was awful. You thought you'd just try it and see what it was like. Yeah. I thought, Hey, these guys are chewing it. Let me just, I was walking up from the stadium and I started, I took probably about four chews and uh, honest to God, I, it was literally like a rocket engine went off in my body. Jeez, oh, <laughs> Just uh, I'm not joking. Yeah. But I think even, even all the way up to like, well, I'm sure some guys still do it, but like Prince Fielder, I think I remember yeah. where they, guys, they would, they would take it right before they went up to bat, right? They would yeah. just take, put, yeah, just put, put it in. Yeah. yeah. And I'm guessing it's just because, you know, like you said, just give them a little bit of a kick yeah. at bat. And then you see them when they were done, they'd take it out and throw it down on the ground and like. Something so, yeah. Bud Selig did positively. He completely banned all tobacco products from Major League Baseball. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, from Major League Baseball. Yeah, oh, so oh, I got completely. some pictures okay. in the book, and you look at our scoreboard, and it's got tobacco advertising up there. Sure. Yeah, Winston. You know, none, I mean, not, right? anymore, not anymore. That's right. Not anymore. Yeah. 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 You know, I mentioned uh, this, the sins of drug use. How about uh, how about the women? Did these guys oh. have a, oh, yeah. a lot of groupies? Yeah, you know, uh, tell you a really big difference. Uh, I did not ever expect this. I thought athletes were going to be similar, but they're very different in the 70s. Um, baseball players are in town for three to four days and their day is a, a more relaxed kind of day. You know, might not be playing, you might not be pitching, you might be in the bullpen, you, you know, you might not be starting that day. So uh, when I, I, we got a road trip a year as clubhouse guys and it's in my book, but these guys, um, um, many, most had, I shouldn't say most, I, I don't, I can't give you a percentage some guys were really straight arrows, uh, but there are a lot of players that had women on the road because mm-hmm. when we'd pull up to a hotel, there'd be 200 women out there. All you have to do is watch Bull Durham. Mm-hmm. In basketball, the players are in for a, a game and we're out. Right. I mean, I took road trips with the Bucks. I filled in for the trainer uh, 
several times over my last two years and one time during medical school and took these long road trips and um, there just isn't time. I mean, you show up, you practice before the game, you go back to the hotel and rest for a while, the game, and either you're out that night or you're out early the next morning. The guys barely have time. Um, They're pretty straight basketball players are, there's guys that screw around. Trust me, you've read about it, but they're, they're as a group, pretty dark doggone tired and straight and um, football players. It's so intense by Saturday and Sunday. I, they're just grunting. And I didn't, I had so few conversations with football players in the locker room. It was incredible. A few quarterbacks, Joe Namath, Johnny Unitas, some of the kickers and punters, the rest, all they do is grunt. So um, I drove, I drove them back several times to their motels and they were so beat and tired. They were just straight in the bed. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so were you in the visiting team's dugout for football also then? Yeah, I was in the okay. visiting locker room most of the time. You know, we went to the Brewers' side, filled in, and on the road, I was on the Brewers' side. So okay. I just got to know the Brewers fairly well, but I was in the visiting locker room, you know, 95% of the time. Sure, yeah. right. right. And we talked about all the sport sporting aspects, but again, the book gets into some other themes. What are some of the other themes in the book? Well, the themes really are, um, you know, coming out of, um, well, first of all, having some pretty incredible family members, you know, my parents did some pretty incredible things in Milwaukee, news reporting and community activism. And then, you know, like the uh, show Mad Men, you know, newspaper reporting in those days was hard driving and hard drinking, you know, and they, Mm -hmm. they were hard drinking and we ran into a lot of family issues as a result. And that's coming out of that. And, it's finding mentors in sports uh, that I didn't expect. I thought I was going to go to sports and just have a great old time. And what really happened was I had to step into some positions of leadership and growing up. And I had people that took me under their wing and made sure that I did things right, which I didn't expect. Like I, I started swearing a couple of times in the locker room and my, my boss in the visiting clubhouse called me over and he said, you're not a ball player. Um, we don't swear here. If you work here, you do it right, and you're going to grow up right. So go home for two days. Oh. And when you come back, um, I want you to act like a normal person again. And if I ever hear you swear again, you'll never work here again. That's the last time I swore in that locker room. Wow. Meanwhile, players are dropping F-bombs every other word. You yeah, know? sure. So, yeah. you know, those were the kind of people. And uh, that guy helped me pay for my wedding and pay for medical school. And uh, wow, I had, um, you know, guys at the Bucks tell me that, you know, I, I thought I was going to, the best I could do was maybe be an athletic trainer. And he said, you're not going to live your life in a locker room. He said, you're, you're smart enough to go to medical school and we're going to figure out a way to get you there. Yeah. Wow. That's, a, that's wow. the first I heard that. So yeah. I had people like that all over the place. Right. We'll uh, give you, we'll give you the, the swear warning here too. Yeah. You swear yeah, on yeah, here. Right. You're not yeah. coming back. Uh, you're going yeah. home, right? Chris? <laughs> Two days. <laughs> yeah, then you can be back on the show. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I want to thank our guest, Patrick McBride, and thank again his brother, Dennis McBride, the mayor of our town here, for coming on our show. And, and the book that will be out by the time this podcast is out, the name of it is The Luckiest Boy in the World, and it'll go through in detail, I'm sure, all these stories we talk about and more, and some of the other themes uh, that were a little bit more serious uh, in the book here coming on. Sounds like it's going to be really interesting. Yep. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah thanks, Patrick. And coming out on the other side. So thank you. Thank you very much. I, I hope I inspire some young people with it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm looking forward to reading it. Yeah. 
You bet. Thank you guys so much. All right. Thanks again for being on our show. Terrific conversation. Thank you so much. Join us next time on the Bait and Switch podcast when we talk with psychologist Ron Martin. You've made it to the end of yet another Bait and Switch podcast. Spread the word.